2: The Guardian. Boris Johnson treads cautiously as we wait to hear how and when lockdown will be lifted. I'm Heather Stewart, political editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. Scientists have discovered a new variant in the UK, another thing to add to ministers' concerns as they decide what next steps England should take towards normal life. Unlike in earlier phases of the pandemic, Boris Johnson has steered clear of optimistic promises and repeatedly urged caution, but that has only increased the tension with his own MPs who believe that once more vaccinations have taken place, restrictions should disappear. So what factors are likely to influence the Prime Minister's speech on the 22nd of February? Will he have learned lockdown-lifting lessons from the past? And was Scotland's First Minister Nicola Sturgeon showing the way when she announced her plans this week? Meanwhile, Education Secretary Gavin Williamson has somehow found time to push new legislation to protect free speech in universities in England. What will that mean? And why choose now to raise the issue of no platforming? And should the Conservative Party also be focusing on a potential problem with race? That's a question that Wilfred Emmanuel-Jones, who ran as a Tory candidate in the 2010 general election, raised last week. Later on, The Guardian's Amna Modine speaks to him about his thoughts on the link between black British voters and the Conservatives. That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, as the Prime Minister prepares to tell England his eagerly awaited plans for lifting lockdown restrictions, I'm joined by Guardian columnist Gabby Hinsliff to discuss the action this week. Gabby, it's lovely to have you on. It's lovely to be here. Now, in the second half of the show, um, my colleague Peter Walker's talking to experts about the factors affecting Boris Johnson's decision on reopening this this, uh, big moment next week. Um, Nicola Sturgeon's already got there, hasn't she? We've already heard from uh, her a bit about what happens next in Scotland.
3: Yes, because Scottish schools or parts of Scottish schools are opening from next Monday. So preschoolers and and the first three years of primary are going back next Monday. So she's obviously jumped in earlier with the announcement to coincide with Welsh schools going back around the same time. Obviously, Scotland and Wales did lockdown slightly earlier than we did this time around. So it's not a huge surprise to see them coming out on a on a different schedule. But obviously that now gives us a comparator for England to look at the different approaches to lifting lockdown who's being more cautious and who's racing ahead
2: and there has sometimes been a feeling that the Scottish approach has has prioritized kids slightly more is that fair do you think
3: i think definitely in the early stages of lockdown you know things like the rules around children were allowed to socialize together over summer at times when adults weren't in scotland for example it was seen as a more child friendly approach i think england's probably learned from that And this lockdown has been definitely more kid friendly. You know, you've been able to, people have been, parents have been able to meet one-to-one with children and, you know, NCT groups have stayed open, all that sort of thing. So this one has been a bit more child friendly. And I think also this time around, we're really seeing schools and school reopening treated as a priority, first thing to open, last thing to close.
2: Gabby, it sounds as though in Scotland, they are still thinking about what we call tiers, different levels of restrictions in different regions. Boris Johnson wants to get away from that, doesn't he? Is is that going to be possible, do you think?
3: It's really difficult because if you have very different sort of levels of infection in different areas are you holding part of the country back that could be open for the sake of the rest of them or is it better for everyone to come out together and create a sense of fairness you know you remember last summer when half the north was in was in tier three and you know parts of the country were in tier one there was a great deal of resentment about what people were allowed to do and in terms of schools opening it's really difficult as well because if you think think about exam years would it be fair for GCSE kids in, in one part of the country to go back and GCSE kids in another part of the country not to be getting formal in-person schooling. So there are, you know, there are huge fairness arguments for everyone coming out together. Unfortunately, there aren't always huge clinical arguments for everyone coming out together.
2: Yeah, and there's cl- clarity as well, isn't it? I suppose it, there was a, a, a baffling period, wasn't there, just after Christmas when schools in some parts of the country and in fact, in some boroughs of London went back on for one day and in other parts of the country not. And it was, it, apart from anything, it was quite confusing, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, and if you're a parent with kids at more than one school, you know, or different years going back, different areas going back can become enormously complicated, suddenly your family life is all over the place as well. So there's a huge argument for coming out together. But I think... I mean, all of this is provisional at the moment, government is saying it'll look at the latest data at the weekend before it makes any announcements on Monday, and that it wants to be taking um, the very latest possible um, evidence into account. So all of this is is prone to change at the last minute, but it looks as if they really want to come out together.
2: Mm. Another thing we've heard a lot of chatter about this week, Gabby, is vaccination passports, isn't it? Or vaccine passports. And it, it's, it's one of those phrases that mean different things to different people. Um, but do you think some form of certificate or whatever it is to show that you've been vaccinated is inevitably going to have to be some part of our, our route out of this?
3: I think in terms of travel, it's going to have to be. Once other countries have started to say, well, you can, you know, we'll let you in if you're vaccinated, then there has to be some kind of proof of vaccination that you can offer. But then that start, and that's, there's precedence for that, you know, somewhere in a drawer, somewhere I've got an old yellow fever vaccination certificate that you had to get into some South American country or other. But I think the problem is then how does that leak down into ordinary life? If, say, you've got an app on your phone, which you can show when you travel, what's to stop your boss asking to see it if they want to know if you've had the vaccine? What's to stop, you know, pubs and clubs wanting to see it? How do you stop that information leaking into places it wasn't ever meant for? And what about people who can't be vaccinated? At the moment, we're not vaccinating children. Pregnant women aren't being vaccinated. People who have other medical complications can't always be vaccinated, does that mean that they can't take part in, in normal life with the rest of us when when country starts to open up? Mm,
2: and the government's line seems to be, doesn't it? That well, initially they denied they had any any thoughts about it whatsoever and said it was absolutely not a thing. And then then have sort of conceded, yes, okay, we are looking at this because there will, as you say, have to be something, some approach for travel. But at the moment, they're saying no, no, it's not it's not our idea for, for how to get you into pubs or clubs or, or whatever. It's testing. They think solves that bit of the problem.
3: Yeah, although the practical problems with testing, you know, are in. If you think about it, if say you went to the cinema and they're asking everyone who goes to see the new James Bond film to have a test, well, that's I don't know, two hundred people probably, all of whom have got to have a test, then wait thirty minutes for the results to come back, and the tests aren't all that accurate, and if that, and it costs you money probably as well. That's that's a lot of that's a lot of admin to go and see a film, <laughs> and, you know, and it's not Maybe it would work for things like music festivals when you're going to be there for a while or, you know, you can see that it would be worth the hassle. But for an everyday popping in for a swift half on your way home from work, are you going to do a, a COVID test on the way? Maybe not.
2: You can see there will be lots and lots of businesses that have been closed for months and will be desperate to try and find some some workable way of reopening, won't they?
3: Yeah, I think what we're going to end up with in practice is social distancing for a lot longer than people thought would happen. So it looks as if the government's talking about pubs and clubs and restaurants, pubs and restaurants rather, not reopening till May, but it might be July before things are sort of open in a normal way. And then even then social distancing would apply, which, which means that they can't be as full as they used to be, you know, maybe limits on who can come in or having to sit at a table, all the rest of it. I don't think vaccination necessarily is the get-out-of-jail-free card that a lot of people think it is.
2: And do you think that the public understand that? So if you talk to Conservative MPs in in the sort of COVID, the very vocal COVID recovery group, as they call themselves, you know, they they say the public don't understand this. There's going to be enormous pressure for as soon as everyone's vaccinated or as soon as a large proportion of the most vulnerable are vaccinated, everything should lift. We should all get back to completely business as usual. Do you think the public understand that it's a bit more complex than that? Or do you think it's huge pressure for, for everything to be back to how it was in summer 2019?
3: I think they're starting to understand that, and I think you know polling's consistently shown all the way through this the government, public is a lot more cautious than certain Tory backbench MPs are, and you know has become last time if you remember when when we unlocked in May the problem the government had was actually sort of persuading people out again. You know people were very nervous about coming out again. That's why we had eat out to help out, you know, all these schemes to encourage people. It wasn't that like you were knocked down in the rush. So I think there may be more caution this time around, but it's partly, if people think of it as a get out of jail free card, that's partly the government's fault. You know, all this talk of a great British summer and vaccines will save us and vaccines will bring us back to normal. It's not surprising if people believe that because that's what they were told.
2: Setting vaccines aside, um, there have been calls this week for the Equality and Human Rights Commission to look at the government's failures over the pandemic and how it's impacted women and other groups under the Equalities Act. The TUC's General Secretary, Francis O'Grady, has said women have been overlooked at every stage of the pandemic. Is that fair, do you think? I think there is a very strong
3: sense that that women bore the brunt of this pandemic domestically but there's also a strong sense that women bore the brunt of this pandemic professionally you know we don't know yet what the impact on jobs is likely to be from the pandemic as a whole because we haven't had that the you know the moment where the furlough ends and and redundancies perhaps um we hope not but but may go through the roof but if you look at where women Predominantly work, you know. The retail sector has taken huge hits over the last few months. You know, hospitality again, very much female-dominated industry, you know, has been absolutely crippled by all of this. I think there's been a sense that government hasn't had its eye on the ball. That that perhaps that's changed over the last few months. But at the beginning, they weren't just weren't thinking in terms of well, how does this differentially impact women? How does it differentially impact Black and ethnic minority people? How does it differentially impact people with disabilities? You know, what's the it wasn't looking for those, you know, unexpected consequences of the things it was doing. And there's a sense as well that it it needs to do that in the recovery, not just during the pandemic, you know, the way we build back out of this, the way you try to create jobs out of this, you can either create jobs in male dominated sectors, or you can create jobs in female dominated sectors, and the choices you make have implications for years to come.
2: Yeah, and as you say, there, there does seem to be a, have been a bit of learning, doesn't there, between earlier lockdowns and this one in terms of, as you said earlier, children and how they're treated. So you know, childcare was kept open, wasn't it, in a way that it wasn't previously. You wonder whether some of those lessons perhaps will feed into to the next phase, the the building back better, as the as the prime minister calls it. And meanwhile, Gabby, uh, the government has picked this moment of all moments to announce that it's introducing new legislation to fight cancel culture on university campuses. What on earth is that about?
3: Yeah, because the massive priority right now, in the middle of an epidemic, when there are no students at university anyway because they can't go and they're all stuck at home in their bedrooms, is uh, whether or not people are allowed to turn up for speaker meetings that aren't happening right now. And uh, so what we've seen is an an announcement from the government about guaranteeing free speech at universities, which is a long standing hobby horse. You know, this has been going on for years. It was Joe Johnson, the the prime minister's brother, who first started talking about this when he was university's minister years ago. And The idea that that students won't listen to people they don't like hearing from, that um, controversial speakers are stood down or disinvited at the last minute. and now we have a proposal that, that um, you, student speaker groups might be fined for refusing to uh, allow free speech from people they disagree with. And it's one of those... It's one of those sort of solutions in search of a problem in a lot of ways in that, yes, you know, there've been some well-publicized instances of, you know, speakers being disinvited or whatever, having controversial views, but is it a massive problem? There was a study showing that we're talking about 0.06% of speaker meetings here having involved no platforming. And even if it was a massive problem, is it one way the government needs to intervene? Because what we're talking about here is government trying to persuade students to think differently than they do to be open to ideas they don't agree with, to be open to being challenged, to be open to being offended, sometimes upset even. And I don't know that you can legislate for that. Can you legislate for the way people think? I don't know that you can.
2: And it's also legislating against something that's not happening, as it were, isn't it? Because it's, it's you know, somebody makes a decision not to invite a particular speaker and, and then gets in trouble for it. It's very hard to know how you sort of capture that in law even, isn't it?
3: The problem with finding people, I think, for, for no platforming is that the obvious response to that is to go, right, we'll never invite anyone who might possibly be controversial. And then we could never possibly be put in the position where an audience objects to them. And then we won't have to pin them. So you you end up with a bigger echo chamber than you did before, I think. And who pays the fine anyway? Is it, is it the, the organisers who uninvited them? Is it the audience who complained about them? Is it the other members of the panel who said, no, we're not, we're not sitting alongside them? You know, it's all, I can't see how any of it works in practice. And that is the classic hallmark of a culture war. It's something that everyone gets very angry about. And then when you boil it down to try and, you know, what the problem is and how you would solve it, it's like nailing jelly to the wall. It disappears beneath your hands because it, it isn't actually that
2: much of a problem.
3: And if there is a solution, it doesn't lie in government hands.
2: what's the politics of this? Does the government really genuinely believe this is a problem that it can try and solve? Or or does it just quite like picking these fights, having what some have called a war on woke? Do they think that politically is good for them? I think it
3: pleases their base. I think it also puts Labour Party in a very difficult position because I think half the point of this stuff is to get Labour to say whether or not it supports, whether or not it supports these measures. You know, are you on the side of woke students who annoy your older, more socially conservative voters? Or are you on the side of your sort of young, urban, liberally minded voters? And they do that with a series of issues. And it's not just it's not just free speech. You know, it's toppling statues or it's how you respond to Black Lives Matter protests. Or there is a culture, I think, in government now of discrimination crediting left-wing activism and protest and trying to sort of sort of rope the Labour Party in with that to force the Labour Party to choose between its sort of component parts and it's quite deliberate and in the moment it's quite effective.
2: Gabby Hinsliff as always thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. After the break we look at what it means to be a black conservative and try to get into the mind of Boris Johnson as he prepares to tell the public how and when we'll be leaving lockdown. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Politics Weekly, I'm Heather Stewart. Wilfred Emanuel-Jones is a black British businessman, farmer, and not so long ago a candidate for the Conservative Party. Emanuel-Jones failed to win the Chippenham seat for the Tories in the 2010 general election. Leaving politics behind, he's now a strong advocate for rural affairs and justice for small producers in the agricultural industry. He received an MBE in the 2020 New Year's Honours List for services to British farming. But he thinks his party has a problem with race. Last week, he wrote an opinion piece for The Guardian after we learned that Boris Johnson's minority adviser, Samuel Kasumu, had quit his post. In Kasumu's leaked resignation letter, he noted that, Though we now have a coalition of voters to provide us with a much coveted majority, I fear for what may become of the party in the future by choosing to pursue a politics steeped in division. Kasumu has since decided to stay on, but the problem, according to Emmanuel Jones, remains. My colleague, the community affairs correspondent for The Guardian, Amna Modine, spoke to Wilfred earlier this week. She started off by asking him what it was like to campaign as a black Conservative in 2010.
1: God, that's a long time ago, 2020. And um, it, it's as though it was a, a lifetime ago. But I found it, um, pre- it was an exciting time, in fact. I really enjoyed it. And there was a real feeling within the Conservative Party that there's a real um, effort to try and get uh, more people from um, ethnic uh, minority backgrounds into the party. And that um, political observers may um, remember that that was a time when um, Cameron had the A-list and I was uh, a member of of the A-list. And I thought that was a a fantastic time um, to be in the party. Nearly
5: a decade later, you wrote a piece for The Guardian where you asked the question, does the Conservative Party still have a problem with race? Do you have an answer to that question?
1: The the correct answer is I do not know because um, since I lost the election uh, for Chippenham in 2010, I was then um, seriously ill. And so for the last seven, eight years, I've been um, trying to fight that. Thank God I'm, I'm still alive. But in a sense, I have not been involved in conservative politics. I mean, I've kept an an eye out for what's sort of going on. And um, my sense is that we seem to have gone backwards. And the reason why I have that sense is that you just don't see any black candidates around. And the ones that you do um, see around tend to be the very um, senior people who tend to be dealing with big, portfolios. One of the great sadness that I have about um, the Conservative Party is that we've never really had a black champion from the political circus. No MP um, that I know of um, in the past or at present you would say yes that person is there fighting on behalf of Black Britain. It's as though there is an embarrassment um, to do that. It's as though in order to get on that will hold them back and so it may be that those people who have have managed to get elected feel that actually they might be in a position where they're compromising their constituents because most of the the black MPs will have um, constituents who are mainly white and they may feel that their white constituents might have a problem that um, they are standing to fight up for the issues of black Britain and the issues of their constituency would be compromised as a consequence so I could imagine that is the battle that's going on so it's going to take someone of real courage to say right yes um, I've been elected for a predominantly white constituency but actually what I want to do is that I want to use that privilege to also address some of the issues that are facing black Britain
5: you wrote in your piece, um, you kind of you wrote this piece in response to the resignation now rescinded of Samuel Kasumu, the PM's minority advisor, a few weeks ago. I wondered, what did his initial res- resignation tell you about what's happening in the Conservative Party?
1: One of the things that I've noticed in, in the commercial world is that since um, the Black Lives Matter movement um, really came out and made a big demand for change, In my industry, I'm seeing big change. I don't feel that that has been grasped by government, by the Conservative Party. It's still very much um, very, very low down on the agenda. And so when Samuel resigned, I thought that that was an indication that there is still um, an internal struggle going on about actually how do you voice the concerns of Black Britain.
5: I was just going to ask, um, you brought up the Black Lives Matter movement. Do you think the party should be supportive of the movement?
1: Anybody with any sense um, should be supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement. Anybody. For me, the Black Lives Matter movement is just another Me Too thing. It's It's the Me Too was that for once women were able to stand up and say, look, this is the sort of stuff that we've had to put up with and struggle with me the the black lives matter moment was exactly the same for once black people and white people could stand up and say yes now we could stand up and say this is the sort of stuff we've had to put up for years and they could say it without being accused of being um chippy it is important to support it and then how do you support it has then become the big debate supporting it doesn't mean you got to go down and take the knee you don't have to take the knee but you know for a lot of Important movements, whether that's gay rights, you know, people will subtly wear a little badge. You know, for example, if if ministers wore a little badge or something to signify the fact that they saw it as important, that would have been enough as far as I'm concerned. You're not going to bring about change unless you have black people within the party forcing that change. And so, Samuel probably <laughs> doing the pushing and that he feels that there is no support and that the only thing that he has is to, is, to, um, is to resign. You know, there's enough black people in the Conservative Party who should be put under pressure to say, "Oh, the time has now come for you to do your bit.
5: Do you currently feel like you have to choose between being black or conservative, or those two identities that sit comfortably
1: with you? Being black and conservative sits very, very comfortable with me because everything about me is that I'm not hiding my blackness just by having a brand called the Black Farmer, it says what it is on the tin. I'm one of the Windrush generation, So it's out there. And what tends to happen, I find, is it is then quite confusing for the liberals actually. So I know you're a liberal newspaper, but what people like to do is like people like to stereotype you. If you're black, you must have this view. You must have this way of thinking. You seem to be a bit odd or eccentric, or you're just dismissed because if you're black and you're Tory, there's gotta be something odd about you. Now, what tends to happen is from the left, it's all about how we're victimized and how how we've been treated badly, which is true. But as far as I'm concerned, I'm the only one out there saying, I ain't no goddamn victim. My blackness is a thing that actually could go out there and achieve great things. So I think that I am an illustration that being black and conservative can go hand in hand
5: are you starting to see signs of things changing in the party and who do you think is getting it right
1: at the moment the problem we have with politics is that even discussing this subject people are going to think my god what a bloody indulgence you know when you've got something like a global pandemic people dying in their thousands everybody's totally focused on that okay and therefore just trying to bring up this subject people are just going to slap you down because they just think You know, are you mad? Can't you see that we've got higher priorities? Now, that is true. But this pandemic will be over. And what I think we need to do as a party is to say, well, what we managed to do in the last election is that we managed to um, get the support of working-class Britain. And therefore, we got a number of seats as, as a result. What we now need to do is do the work to get the support of black britain what is it that we need to do so black people do not feel that the only party that for them is is the is the labor party and the problem is it's not just about being black it's about actually i think most of the black people there you know they're oxbridge They, they they have a totally different experience somebody like me going into that sort of environment well i just wouldn't be able to play on the same um, level that they do. But I believe I'll be able to connect with Black Britain because I have the shared experience. And that is what we need to do is have people who have the shared experience in those positions of power. If you if you manage to become an MP, you know, you are privileged, because when I stood as an MP in Chippenham, I could only do that because I was privileged You know, I wasn't out there having to, you know, work nine to five and do that. I was privileged. I was able to have a a business or something else going in the background. And so that's what I think sometimes people need to remember is that, you know, you're privileged to make it through in politics in the Conservative Party. And we should be using that privilege to try and help people up rather than just trying to appease our white counterparts.
2: I'm speaking to Wilfred Emmanuel-Jones there. Now the 22nd of February is fast approaching and we're waiting to see what the Prime Minister will announce about the latest roadmap out of lockdown in England. Last month, Matt Hancock said there were four criteria that must be addressed before lockdown could be eased. Reducing hospitalisations, cutting deaths, controlling the spread of new variants and the success of the vaccine programme. This week, my colleague Peter Walker spoke to Guardian Health Editor Sarah Bosley and the political commentator Rob Hutton on how Johnson
6: will make his decision. So Rob and Sarah, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for having me on. All we basically know is that the data is being reviewed this week, and then the Prime Minister Boris Johnson is going to set out more details of how lockdown could potentially take place from February 22nd. Sarah, one thing that Number 10 keeps on talking about is that they're still waiting on data to see how effectively The vaccines prevent people who have been vaccinated from potentially passing the virus on to other people. What do we know about this? So what we know is that
7: if you have one jab, you're going to be probably 70 to 80% protected, something like that. It's only with the second jab that you're really going to get up to, you know, near 90, 95%. You've got at least 5% of people who can't be certain of of protection. That's the first thing, even after two jabs. So there's that sort of data to worry about. And also, we do know that not everybody is accepting the vaccination. So although it looks glorious, you've you've really got to wait to see who's really protected. And we don't have the data because nobody has yet done a mass vaccination program and got the results from it. So Israel's along the way. They're ahead of us. Um, And some of their data looks quite good. But we don't have real figures
6: now for what we're doing. So, Rob, amidst all that, you have Boris Johnson, who's going to be coming under pressure from all sides. I mean, what are the political forces massed against him currently? I mean, how, how powerful are these slightly restive Tory backbenchers?
4: Well, in in what I'm tempted to call an unusual scenario, except that it's the entirely typical scenario for the last five years, the main problem facing the Conservative Prime Minister isn't across the aisle from him, it's, it's behind him and its Tory MPs. I mean, in an odd sort of way... For especially for those of us who spent the Brexit years covering tight votes, the one thing he doesn't have to worry about is losing a vote on lockdown in Parliament because Labour will vote with him or will abstain. So he's always going to be able to get. He's always going to have the numbers to get things through. But there are this group of sort of sixty odd Tory MPs who call themselves the COVID Recovery Group, which is a, a deliberate nod to the European Research Group, which many of them were in, which uh, made life such a misery for uh, Theresa May. They are now saying that they want schools, all schools completely open on March the 8th, and uh, all hospitality unlocked by Easter, are their two demands. They have been, I mean, they they say these are not arbitrary dates, these are data-led dates. In a sense, that's true, but they have been, That you know, this is the sort of the third or fourth round of calling for um, lockdown to be lifted. Uh, and this is the first time that the dates haven't been arbitrary. So, it is it is slightly one of these situations where at some point the COVID recovery group and uh, Steve Baker will be right to call for lockdown, but but one should one should not ignore the fact that all of the previous times they have been wrong. So Sarah, um, one of the things
6: that government used to, well, the British government used to say a lot is we're being led by the uh, by the uh, by the science, which I know used to annoy scientists massively. It's this idea of science has been this kind of monolithic thing, which you know is one thing. Uh, Or the other. Um, In terms of the advice the government is getting, how much do you think these days the kind of epidemiologists and the scientists are in accord in what the government are actually currently doing? Well, actually, I think
7: they're listening to them far more than they did to begin with, um, because they've come a cropper. You know, they have in the past not listened properly, not done what they were told to do by people like the chief scientific officer Patrick Valance and the SAGE group. And and Chris Whitty, so things have gone very badly wrong in the past, and we did lock down too late, um, twice. So I really think that they have learned a, a bit of a lesson there, and they do not want to get their fingers burned again. So that is going to be one of the big reasons why they're not going to rush to lift all the restrictions straight away. And I think what you'll find the scientists are saying is go with caution. And it's not helped by the fact that we now know that the vaccines are protecting people against hospitalisation and death and serious illness, but we are increasingly uncertain that they really do protect against transmission. That's really up in the air in a way that I didn't think it was going to be. I thought once we got enough people vaccinated, then surely there just wouldn't be much virus
6: around and you wouldn't get much transmission looking in the shorter term, I mean, there is a tentative plan in place to start reopening schools from the 8th of March. And then there's various programmes to kind of go through a bit more social easing, then non-essential retail, then pubs, etc, etc. Sarah, in your view, what would happen for this to basically not work for lockdown to go on longer or for restrictions to, to be lifted at a slower pace? I mean, what are the perils that we potentially face?
7: Well, the the big terror on the horizon is the variants, of course. You know, um, ironically, we're now doing all the stuff we should have done when the coronavirus itself first arrived last year, early last year, and all the sorts of things that Australia and New Zealand did, which is track it down really, really well, make sure that you've got everybody's contacts, make sure they self-isolate and close your borders. (laughs) So... We're doing all that now against the variants. And what we have to be very sure of is that we um, don't allow that to spread. But that, that's a very difficult scenario because closing your borders for a country like ours is, is obviously um, going to be quite detrimental. So no holidays abroad and no trade. Uh, we've got 33 countries now that are labelled as red. They're not countries that we trade with massively, but... They are the countries we're afraid of, and there may be others to come, lots more to come.
6: And um, Rob, as Sarah kind of mentioned there, the government is slightly changed now. Boris Johnson is almost a slightly changed man that earlier on um, in the coronavirus period, he was very much the kind of boosterist in chief who'd always say, oh, we'll be, you know, things will be normal by summer, then by Christmas. He almost seems like a changed man. What do you think the difference is?
4: (sighs) Well, I think, I mean, you know, at at, at some level, surely even Boris Johnson has to start learning things at some point. And yes, I mean, they will be aware that he promised us a lot lot of things at various points that turned out to be wildly optimistic. So I think they've been burned. I think they've been burned by by not having done it before. When prime ministers go into number 10, they say, oh, it's going to be different. I'm going to be different from the last guy the last woman. And actually, they start to realise that a lot of the reasons why people in that office behave in the way they do are to do with being in that office. And I'm not sure that that Boris Johnson was ever really in love with the ERG. But I think that, that he must now look over his right shoulder at Steve Baker in much the same way that Theresa May looked over her right shoulder at Steve Baker and just think, this guy is not helping me. And indeed if i got something wrong it's partly because i was listening to these guys if i I'm, I'm stuffed if i'm going to listen to these guys again and the scientists as it were have have had a big win which is the vaccine and i know I, I i hate this monolithic idea of that there are the scientists and they all agree on something because they don't and it's difficult and there's you know the vaccine scientists are not the same as the testing scientists are not the same as the the epidemiologists but as it were, the, you know the sort of there is we're having a win for science in this country and a a lose for really wishful thinking.
6: And in a in a weird way, we're kind of now reaching the crunch point because one of the, you know, one of the few things that Number Ten has definitely agreed is going to take place is going to be quite a big moment of schools starting to fully reopen from eighth of March, and from both a kind of political and a scientific point of view, it's going to be quite a big moment. Sarah, from the point of view of transmission of the uh, uh, virus, there are some scientists who've basically said they think keeping the um, R rate for coronavirus, the reinfection rate, below one when schools are open is going to be tricky. I mean, are there going to be particular challenges, um, assuming most schools do start to go back? There is a challenge,
7: but there is a real a difficult balance to to observe here, which is between you know the the real damage that's being done to children by being out of school and and the the risk that they will um, spread the virus so the the real important thing here is that we are going to preserve people from getting seriously ill. I don't think now that we can assume that we're going to stop people getting infected. Mm. That is not what we are certain the vaccines do. They may give us some protection, but we have to think now in terms of a disease that we may pick up, but just not get very ill with just like flu. So kids spray flu as well, but they don't get seriously. And, you know, this is a it's um, the it, coronavirus. It's common cold as a coronavirus too. And that it's sometimes worth bearing that in mind that it's really quite easy to catch. Um, but hopefully you do not get very sick. So that's what the vaccines are trying to do for us. They're trying to protect us from getting very sick. So it shouldn't matter if children go back to school, as long as their grandmas and grandpas have all been vaccinated, all those people in the the at risk groups, that
6: means that they could end up in hospital and die. One of the things Sarah you mentioned earlier was obviously this issue about the variants coming into the uh, into the UK. And Rob, for all that you're saying that the government is now kind of getting things, you know, largely right, um, the quarantine policy has been in a certain amount of chaos. It's been talked about for a long time. Uh, We now finally have a reasonably restrictive one to try and keep these new variants out, which comes into force, came into force this week. Um, But it took quite a while to get there. And there were a few hiccups uh, along the way. For uh, example, just from my point of view, on Friday afternoon, I was talking to one of the union leaders for Border Force staff. And she said that about 48 hours before the policy was due to come into place, Border Force staff had been given no guidance as to how it was going to work. And this is almost kind of old-style coronavirus policy, isn't it, over uh, over the quarantine?
4: First of all, Britain has got lucky in the sense that every vaccine development programme is rolling a dice. The world has got lucky. And you can see from the, the sort of the extent of the over-ordering that the UK did, that it didn't expect all of these to pay off. Also, vaccinating people is actually something that the NHS does every year. So... We know how to do it. And we're doing it on an unprecedented scale. But fundamentally, you're not asking doctors to do anything that they don't know how to do. Locking down at the border, if you're asking the government to become a mass hotel room booker. Um, and indeed, you know, to sort of to, to, to lock large numbers of people up for two weeks at a time, which, again, is is very far from uh, its core competence. And these are the things I think that you, <clears throat> that you see going wrong because there is no muscle memory.
6: And I'm going to end by asking you both a slightly impossible question, which is, I mean, it looks very likely like there's going to be some kind of coronavirus containment or mitigation measures into the long term. You know, there's talk of potentially a third booster jab in autumn to deal with any, uh, any variants and potentially, you know, other measures into the longer term. But if you had to predict, do you think this will be, in terms of this particular virus, the last full-scale English-wide lockdown. Um, Sarah, you can maybe uh, answer this very tricky question first. I, I hope that this
7: is the last lockdown, and I think the measures there will be measures, but there will they will be less than this, and we may get back to some socialising, and hopefully without a vaccine passport because that's a very divisive thing to do. But I'm a bit afraid of what it means. Uh, in terms of being shut in this island, I think, you know, with the barriers up against other countries and not only our inability to go on holiday, but also the inability to to trade with other countries and for people to come here.
4: If you look at the, the level of public support, there has been public support for each of these lockdowns. There is public support for, for going harder. This has caused Tory MPs to see what they see as flaws, other people might see as maturity. I mean, like Sarah, I desperately hope that it that, that it is the last one. I I wonder whether I will be shaking hands with people that I've met for the first time. You know, even after all this is over, I do sort of wonder how our lives are going to be different.
6: Excellent. Well, on that very thoughtful note, Rob Hutton, Sarah Bosi, thank you very much.
2: Thank you. Pleasure. And that's all from us this week. Over the next two weeks, we're going to be focusing on the spring budget which the Chancellor Rishi Sunak will present to the Commons on the 3rd of March. Next week, we'll be looking at how Sunak should address those in the UK who've often been ignored in previous budgets. We'll also explore Sunak himself. Will he be able to maintain his popularity with voters once it becomes clear how we're going to pay for the pandemic? So tune in next week. And in Politics Weekly Extra on Friday, Kenya Evelyn steps in behind the mic. As Joe Biden touches down in Milwaukee this week, Kenya speaks to Wisconsin State Representative David Bowen, about the administration's early obligations to the black voters who swung the election in Democrats' favour, as well as how to tackle racial equality in the pandemic. So make sure to look for that in the same feed where you found us. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Gabby Hinsliff, Amna Modine, Wilfred Emmanuel-Jones, Peter Walker, Sarah Bosley and Rob Hutton. The producers are Amy Leibovitz and Danielle Stevens. I'm Heather Stewart. Please look after yourselves and thanks as always for listening.
0: That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
5: A third of students are less than happy about their university choice, new research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming
2: higher education. This message was paid for by EY.